Well, church, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Obadiah this morning. Obadiah, got tired of hearing you all ask, when are we going to do Obadiah? Okay, so here we are. You might need your table of contents to find it. It is a very short book, uh, but if you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 772. Uh, Obadiah, 772. We are actually, uh, though we typically don't do this, we're going to look at a couple other passages today. I'm just going to forewarn you. You may want to pre-find them. Uh, Psalm 137 and Isaiah 63. And so uh, if you want to find those, or we could, you could find them with me as we uh, get to that point in the sermon. But a bulk of our time will be in this wonderful little book, Obadiah, that I want to introduce to you. And I trust that God will bless our time in it. So here we are, Obadiah. In verse 1, hear now the word of God. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the cleft of the rocks and lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If great gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter because of the violence you have done to your brother Jacob. Shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, On the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his distress in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. 
And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possession. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Cephalah shall possess the land of the Philistines, and they shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of Canaan as far as Zarephah. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Seraphod shall possess the cities of Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Our Father, we're thankful for your word now as we study what I think most of us would consider a one of the most obscure books in Scripture. And yet, uh, we believe, as your word testifies, that all Scripture is breathed out by you and is therefore useful. And so we trust there's great use for us today as we consider your word. And so we pray, as Samuel did of old, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It was uh, years ago that the uh, publication, the Arizona Republic, uh, carried uh, the, an article about a man named Gordon Hall. It read as such, it is dusk and Gordon Hall stands at the overlook of his 55,000 square foot mansion. He is 32 years old and a millionaire many times over. The lights of the city below him are like campfires of a great army to Hall who sees himself as its general. They are, for him, like the stars of the firmament, and he is above them. He is worth more than a hundred million dollars, he says, uh, because it was his goal to be worth more than a hundred million dollars before the age of 33. There are other goals. By the time he is 38, he will be a billionaire. By the time his earthly body expires, and he is convinced that he can live to be 120 years old, he will assume what he believes to be his just heavenly reward. Gordon Hall will be a god. As he says, as man now is, God once was. And as God is now, a man can become. I believe I can do anything. My genetic makeup is to be a god. God in heaven creates worlds and universes, I believe I can too. End quote. Well, Mr. Hall discovered uh, that his limitations were a bit beyond what he thought, uh, far less than God's, I'm afraid. He never made it to a billion. In fact, by age 44, 44 he was convicted of racketeering and sentenced to seven years in a federal penitentiary where it's probably wise not to tell your neighbors that you plan to become God. This, of course, is a delusion that's not new to him, something we actually read about in the Bible, don't we? Nebuchadnezzar comes to mind, the great king of Babylon, as he strode atop his royal palace. You remember, he said, is this not great? Uh, is, this not, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? Or uh, we consider King Herod in the New Testament in his royal dress as he uh, speaks to the people. They respond to him, the voice of a God, not of a man. 
This, I think, is probably, in some sense, though not to this degree, maybe a universal reality in all of us. That is that we, we want our na- name to be known. We want to be praised. We want to be thought high of. We trust in our own greatness. This, of course, was the main problem, it seems, in the country of Edom. Note verse 3 in Obadiah. The prophet says, The pride of your heart has deceived you. Deceived you. Now you might wonder why in the world we're studying Obadiah this morning. Well, last week, if you remember, in our study through Genesis, looking chiefly at the life of Jacob, we saw that his father Isaac both blessed Jacob and his older brother Esau. Remember, Jacob was told, you shall be lord over your brothers. And Esau was told, you shall serve your brothers, but when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. We do know that, of course, Jacob went on and was renamed Israel. In fact, started the the nation of Israel where they would settle in the, the land that was called Canaan at the time. Esau would also become a nation, just as God prophesied that uh, to Rebekah, you have two nations in your womb. He, he became a nation, and the people that uh, Esau brought about were called Edom. Edom. And they were just to the southwest of Canaan. In fact, I have a map that I would like to show you, just so you know, uh, we know where we are. Of course, you see there in the yellow, that would be the kingdom of Edom. And then, of course, the kingdom of Judah right directly to the north and Israel above them. And so that's where Edom is, the cousins of uh, the nation of Israel. They settled right beneath them. And because of their proximity, they were in perpetual conflict. You could probably take the map away now. Uh, for instance, uh, when, when Israel was redeemed from the promised land, uh, excuse me, redeemed from uh, Pharaoh's Egypt, and they were traveling to the promised land, they asked, can we travel through Edom? And you remember that the Edomites said, no, you can't travel, even though they, they offered even to pay them just to be able to travel through. And the, the, their, their brothers, the Edomites, wanted nothing to do with them. There was a perpetual conflict that was going on between them until finally David, King David, would achieve domination over the nation of Edom. But uh, once David was uh, off the throne uh, and his successors came, Edom fought back and they uh, got some independence of Israel and they were always fighting each other. In fact, if you, if you study the history between these new nations, they're either fighting, or they're about to fight, or they had just finished fighting. In fact, one commentator puts it this way, no country was more bitter and constantly hostile towards Judah than Edom. Other enemies came and went. The Canaanites were succeeded by the Philistines, who were succeeded by the Syrians, who were succeeded by the Greeks, but Edom was always there, implacable, unmerciful, filled with hate. In fact, I found it was surprising in my research to learn that no other nation in the Bible receives more oracles against it than Edom itself. So there is bad blood between these uh, two nations, between these, these brothers. Remember, it started in the womb when Rebecca was pregnant and they were wrestling and fighting even then. And uh, it continued for centuries after that. Well, Obadiah comes... And Obadiah is helpful because it fi- he finishes the story, right? We, 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 he tells us how the relationship between these brothers and their descendants ends. In other words, how does the prophecy uh, uttered over each of them in Genesis 27, which we saw last week, how does it play out? 
That's what Obadiah will show us, and that's why we're here this morning. Give us a little context, a little understanding of how this all works out, as we saw, or at least introduced in Genesis. It is, of course, you probably know, the shortest book in the Old Testament. Uh, Just this one chapter here, we'll, we'll do all 21 verses, God willing, this morning. And then we'll see that God will judge Edom. And, by the way, all who are like Edom, largely because of their pride. Their pride. And so, therefore, this book is helpful because it is a warning against all who are proud. That God does not treat pride lightly. I say that because I think we do. We, you know, pride's like a junior varsity sin. It's not that big of a deal. Okay? You, 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 uh, you, you're in an accountability relationship and maybe someone shares their struggles with you. And, and just imagine they say, you know... Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm stealing all the time. Uh, you would be a little bit shocked probably, wouldn't you? Right? Or, or they say, well, yeah, um, I'm, I'm uh, cheating on my spouse. You would say, okay, well, that, well that, that's something we need to deal with. That's a big deal. But they say, you know, I'm, 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 I'm struggling with pride. You just kind of yawn, right? Okay, big deal. I mean, what's, what's the big deal? Right? I mean, and someone could say, I think it was James Boyce in my, in my research, said someone could come to you and say, you know, he's a, he's a really good man, but, but he's proud. And we would say, okay, well, that, I, I get that. But if we came and said, he's a really good man, but he cheats on his spouse, you would say, wait a second. No, those two don't go together, right? He can't be one and, and do the other. Right? But for some reason, pride is, uh, is not that big of a deal to us. Uh, certainly not something God will judge someone for. Certainly not an entire nation. And yet when we read Scripture, it seems that we find quite the opposite to our own instinct, that pride is a huge deal to God. And remind us that it is pride and not adultery or theft or whatever it might be that got Satan kicked out of heaven. And it is pride, is it not, that got humanity kicked out of the garden as they, like Gordon Hall, said, I want to be like God. The proverb writer says, the man who is proud in his heart is an abomination in his sight. And so as we begin to study this book, would you, would you maybe open yourself up to the possibility that you're proud? I think that would make this, this, our time together helpful. If you just kind of, I'm not saying you are proud. I'm not saying this is something you struggle with. But just open yourself up to the possibility that you do. Because the problem with, with preaching on pride is all the proud people don't think they need it. Because right? they're too proud. Right? So that's not going to be helpful at all. So you just got to open yourself up. Maybe, God, this is an issue for me. And that you would show me myself. That it might be even a mirror to me. Um, as we consider the first of two points. The one we'll spend a bulk of our time on this morning. Judgment on the proud. Really divide this book into two halves, if you will. The first 14 verses talk about judgment on the proud, in particular on those against Edom. As you see in verse 1, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. So Obadiah has a vision, evidently, and in the vision he sees a messenger calling the nations. And he's asking them to do what? Well, read on in verse 1. Rise up. And let us rise against her, that is Edom, for battle. 
So the messenger is calling for the nations to come and bring judgment on Edom. God does this. God will use one nation against another. He uses Syria against Israel. As you know, he used Babylon against Judah. Then he used Persia against Babylon. Here he's going to use the nations against Edom. So judgment is coming. You might ask why. Why is God going to judge Edom? Well, it might be helpful to jump over to verse 10 and consider the acts in which Edom can, uh, um, did that is bringing God's judgment upon him. For he says there in verse 10, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. This is, so they did violence to their brother. This is why God is going to judge them. Here it might be helpful, if you will, to turn over to Psalm 137. Psalm 137. Keep your finger back to Obadiah because you'll never find it again. Uh, But Psalm 137 is actually a psalm that's written by the Jews who are in exile in Babylon. As you know, in 586, God sent Babylon in judgment of his own people after hundreds of years of calling for them to repent. He sent Babylon there, utterly destroyed uh, the nation of Judah Uh, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, tore it all the way down to its foundations, and took every Jew they could find into exile as slaves back into Babylon. And so the, the Jews who are enslaved in Babylon write Psalm 137. And so we read in verse 1, by the waters of Babylon, this is where they are now, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, when we begin to think about home, we who are captives in Babylon, we begin to weep. Verse 2, on the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Right, so they're, 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 they're captives in Babylon, and the Babylonians come to them and say, Hey, hey, Jewish guys, sing us some of those songs about your mighty God. Right? You know the the great strong God that's going to judge all the nations, and now you're here, and you're our captives, and we utterly laid waste to your entire nation. Why don't you sing us a song about your God? Well, they answer. That's kind of difficult to do. In verse 4, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And... uh, and, and they say, you know, we can't, it's hard to praise God here. And then if you jump down to verse 7, well, they begin to think about that destruction that took a place upon them. And they remember their cousins, their brothers, the Edomites. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundation." So it seems that when the Babylonians came from the north to destroy Jerusalem, the Edomites came up from the south to kind of enjoy the fun, right? And they, they, uh, they came to help the Babylonians destroy their brothers, and evidently with great delight, they even shouted there, as you see in verse 7, lay it bare, lay it, lay it down, right? What is it? Tear it down. Come on, they're cheering on the Babylonians. Tear that temple down to its foundation. They stood on the hillside and shouted, and it evidently impacted the survivors of Israel so much that they're writing this psalm years later, and they still can remember the taunts of their brothers to the south. And evidently so did God, for God was not pleased. As you turn back to Obadiah and read there in verse 10, 
you shall be cut off forever. In fact, Obadiah then goes on to write of Edom's participation in the, with the Babylonians in the destruction of the Jews. Look in verse 11. On the day you stood aloof, on the day, when, uh, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Right? You did nothing to help what he calls your brother Jacob in verse 10. He'll use that same phrase in verse 12. While strangers or foreigners came and plundered them. Instead you gloated and rejoiced and boasted. Verse 12. But, you did not, but, but do not gloat over your brother uh, in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of their distress. They, they found great delight in the destruction of their, their brother. Some people are like that, aren't they? Even Christians are like that. The, the, when a brother falls, they don't, they don't, they don't help. Instead, so they're filled with delight. And they like to spread it around a little bit. Did you hear what happened to so-and-so? Or did you know what so-and-so did? Even though the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, he that is glad at calamities shall not be unpunished. Well, they did more than gloat over the destruction of Judah. They contributed to it. For verse 13 tells us, do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. They were like looters after a hurricane. Edom plundering his brother's homes like a, like a vulture come plucking away at the carcass left behind by Babylon. And worst of all is perhaps 14. As we read, they, they rounded up the refugees fleeing for their lives and handed them back over to the Babylonians. Do not stand at the crossroads, he says. Do not cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of his distress. Uh, we, of course, can't even imagine what it would be like to, to run for your life from a marauding army, right? And just grabbing your family, and maybe you're one of the lucky few or the blessed few to escape from Jerusalem as the Babylonian horde invades your city, and you take off, uh, and you're just running. Well, the Edomites, your cousins, they know the local roads pretty well. And so they wait by those crossroads, and when you come running... They either cut you down or capture you to hand you back over to the Babylonians. I want you to remember, this is not a myth. This really happened. This is history. There was a real attack in the year 586. This is a real event. These were real people. These were real terrifying flights and exhausting runs, only to find their brothers, the Edomites, there to ambush them. And I mentioned that Obadiah mentions a couple times the relationship between these two nations, calling them brothers in verse 10 and verse 12, referring to the Babylonians as strangers and foreigners. This relationship is actually emphasized throughout this book. They are, these two nations are called by the name of their ancestors in verse 6, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, verse 17, verse 18, verse 19, and verse 20. That's either referred to as either Esau, not Edom, Esau, or Jacob, not Israel. Right? In other words, you're related. In fact, in Deuteronomy, the Jews were told by God himself, do not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. And so their betrayal is not of a stranger. It's not even of a neighbor. It is of a, of a brother. And the brother is one we are to love, no matter what. And the brother is, is one we are to help in their time of need. A brother is one we are to, to defend, no matter how great the army comes against us. Of course, our brothers and our sisters are here in this room with us. 
That's within our church, in addition to our, our families, this is our faith family. We, we, we are brothers and, and sisters bound together as siblings. I love the story that was told of Chuck Colson, uh, who was uh, visiting an Indiana prison uh, with his ministry, the Prison Fellowship, that any of you are familiar with. And he had to catch a flight. Uh, it was time to leave. But he had brought with him a volunteer who didn't want to leave. And uh, he, in fact, he, the volunteer was talking to a death row inmate. And Colson grew very impatient and said, we need to leave. The plane is leaving. In fact, he had a meeting with the governor. I, I have to get out of here. We have to go. The volunteer kept saying, I need another minute. I need another minute. And, and finally, Colson said, no, time is up. We need to go. And the volunteer turned to him and said, you don't understand. This man is James Brewer, and I am Judge Clement. I sentence him to death. But now we are brothers, and we need to stay, and we need to encourage him, and we need to pray. His biographer says, Colson tells how he stood frozen in place looking at that scene. Here were two men, one black, one white, one powerless, one powerful, one condemned to die, the other the one who had pronounced that sentence. Yet there they stood, grasping a Bible together, United as one Christian brother with another. That's what the gospel does for us. But Edom seems to be of a different mind. What was it that Isaac said of Esau long ago? By your sword you shall live. And so he did. But God saw it, didn't he? God's not blind. He saw every sneer, every taunt, every life destroyed. He marked it down. You notice how many times he repeated, I saw that day, the day, the day, the day that you did this. He marks that down, and God still does. God still sees. Don't you realize that? He saw on Christmas, just a month and a half ago, how 11 Christians were killed in ISIS, by ISIS in Nigeria. He saw on January 26th that 32 Christians were killed by Boko Haram just two weeks ago. He saw on January 12th how in India, 100 Hindu nationalists ransacked Christian homes, beat several Christian families with sticks and clubs. He saw in Burkina Faso, just a number of months ago, a pastor and five others leaving the church when confronted after their service with men on motorbikes who demanded they convert to Islam. When they refused, they were shot dead outside their church. He saw just a, a, a handful of days ago when Chinese pastor Wang Yi was sentenced to nine years in prison for preaching the gospel, for unlawful evangelizing in China. Uh, we, uh, pastor uh, Yi said at his sentencing, Jesus is the Christ, the son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my king and the king of the whole earth yesterday, today, and forever. I am his servant, and I am imprisoned because of this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God, and I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's laws. And the prison door was closed, and God saw it. God sees it all. When the body on earth hurts, the head in heaven knows. When the bride is attacked, the groom will rise up. As we turn to the heart that gives rise to these violent acts, Edom's heart there is told us in verse 2. We read, Behold, 
I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride in your heart has deceived you. They thought they were pretty special. They, they thought, well, they were kind of invincible. No one can get us. And in particular, they were proud, evidently, of their own natural defenses. As you read on in verse 3, he says, You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwellings, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? See, the, the, the Edomites, they literally lived in caves in a very mountainous region among the red sandstone cliffs, some of them as high as 5,000 feet above sea level. Their capital was the city named Petra that many of you have perhaps visited, a city carved into rock walls. In fact, I even brought a picture for us, and you perhaps have seen something like this. This is one of the many cities or pictures of the city of Petra that they would actually build their, their cities into the cliffs, high above even as Obadiah says. And these cities are so incredibly remote uh, that they weren't discovered, or at least rediscovered, until the year 1812. We had no idea this existed until about 200 years ago, uh, until someone actually found them. Uh, An archaeologist discovered them. And the access to Petra and places like this are equally impressive. In fact, I got one last picture for us this morning. And you see that there's the entranceway right there. Uh, through that, that narrow winding canyon, you have to walk from what I understand a mile through a canyon like this that is no more than 15 feet wide with towering walls on each side. And so a, an, an invading army that wants to attack the city has to march down that narrow canyon in order to reach that city. And, and many a military minds think if you had a dozen well-placed men, they could hold off an entire army. And so they, of course, think... Well, who can bring us down? Right? I mean, our natural defenses are insurmountable. Who will bring me down to the ground, they boast. Answer, God says, I will. As you see in verse 4. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares God. The rocks and the mountains and the canyons and all the rest don't trouble the one who made them. In fact, no earthly power can protect them from God, but they seem to be mindless of the truth, don't they? they their pride has, what did, we, what did we read? Has deceived them. They're blinded by pride. They're like a drunk man picking a fight with a football team, right? And he's deluded by his inebriation and thinks he could take them all on. Perhaps you heard the story of Muhammad Ali long ago, the great heavyweight champion, uh, was on an airplane and the flight attendant approached him and said, Mr. Ali, you need to buckle your seatbelt. He responded, Superman need no seatbelt. And which the flight attendant said to him, Superman need no plane either. Please buckle your seatbelt. In every case, a proud man is a deceived man. He is not what he thinks himself to be. Certainly Edom would characterize for that. You remember the, uh, the Maginot line you studied in history? This might be a a fitting parallel, that famous defensive fortification between France and Germany, how France in the late 20s and the the 30s saw Germany under Hitler rearming themselves, and so they built up their defensive fortifications along the border between those two nations. An incredible uh, military feat, concrete trenches, 
tank obstacles, artillery stations, lookout posts, even an underground rail, railway there along that Maginot line. There had living areas, recreation areas, even air conditioning, which was incredibly rare in the 1930s, leaving the, the, the French assured of their safety against a rearming Germany. So let Hitler build up his armies, right? We're safe behind our Maginot line. It took them 10 years to complete. It took Germany five days to march around it. No one ever occurred that they might just go around the actual defensive fortifications. Utterly useless. And now it is a picture of folly for those who trust in their own strength, in their own might, apart from God. I'll tell you, based upon God's word, you could build your life on whatever you want. You can trust in whatever you can conceive. It might be your appearances, your wealth, your job, your friends, your family, your strength. If you're trusting in this or that or something else that, to bring you peace and security, it's just like imagine a line. It will fail you. God will show you, just like he did in Edom, Though you soar like an eagle, though you boast in whatever it might be, he will bring you down. For you are a creature, and he alone is the creator. You are a dependent, not the depender. You are the commanded, not the commander. And so we must trust in God and be humble in doing so. To be a Christian, as you know, is to forsake pride. All Christians must be humble people to be to even become a Christian. All other religions, every other world religion is based on pride, pride in your own goodness, pride in earning your own blessings, pride in your own works. I knock on doors, I, I pray in a certain direction, I don't eat pork, I go to holy sites, whatever it might be, all these different rules, right? But it's at the heart, it's what I do to earn God's blessing. It's, it's what I have achieved to earn his favor. I'm a good person, therefore he ought to bless me. Christianity is the only religion that actually requires the opposite, it requires humility, it, that requires us to admit we are not good and therefore need a savior be merciful to me a sinner christ taught us to pray humility is the way to christ and, and even beyond that humility is the way of christ for christ himself humbled himself and took on humanity and died on the cross to cleanse us from our sin and so humility being the way of christ is the way to christ and must be for all christians Therefore, my brothers and sisters, beware of pride and the delusion that it brings. Rather than focusing on yourself and trying to posture yourself, rather than than focusing on the, the slights that people do against you, rather look to Jesus. Choose to look to him. Make him look good. That's our job. What are we made for? What are we here? We're here to reflect the image of Christ. We're here to show off Jesus. Who cares about me? Have you seen Jesus? Do you know what he's teaching me? Do you know what he's doing in my life? Do you know how he's blessing me? Do you know how he's providing for me? Right? We have incredible opportunities to be able to testify to Christ and not our own greatness, but what the Lord is doing. In particular, pray that Hamilton Baptist Church as a congregation would be a people marked by humility. The elders were discussing on Thursday night that one of the dangers that we face as a church in, in what we consider to be a period of God's favor on us Things are good here. The church is growing. The church is united. We're focused on Christ. And one of the dangers is that we, we begin to take credit for those blessings. And we start to think, well, we must be something special. 
and that we are filled with pride. And so that pray that God would protect us from the pride that we might even steal his glory for the blessings that he bestows upon us. Pray that that would be the case because God will judge those uh, in their pride who oppose him as you consider Edom's doom. As we uh, wrap up this idea that God judges the, the proud, Edom's doom is found here in verse 5 when he says, If thieves come to you, if plunderers come by night, how you would have been destroyed, would they not, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If great gathers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? In other words, when someone comes to rob your house, they usually don't bring a moving truck, right? They don't take everything, right? They leave the, the spatulas and the, the towels, right, and the coffee maker. They don't take everything. But God is saying to Edom, no, you're going to lose it all. For we read in verse 6 how Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. And God, in fact, says, I'm going to use your friends to do it. For we read in verse 7, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding, right? The, their allies are going to turn on them, God says, and we'll see this happen. Babylon will be the one who initially does the first blow against them. They're great allies. It's almost like a movie where the main character has this, this friend that he places too much trust in, right, and brings them too close, and he turns out to be the enemy. Well, this is exactly what's happening here. They trusted in their allies. They trusted in their wisdom. For verse 8 tells us, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and the understanding out of Mount Esau? There's supposedly a place of great wisdom, evidently. And if that were to be true, they would have made an alliance with God, entered into a covenant with him and his people. And so no, their wise men, their sages, could not protect them, and neither could their soldiers. For we read in verse 9 that they trusted in their strength as well. And you mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman. So that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. They trusted in their allies, their wisdom, their strength. That kind of is a little bit shocking, I think, um, for us Americans. We too uh, have uh, great military power as our nation. We too have an incredible network of alliances. We too boast to be wise people. And will these things, will they protect us from God? I would suggest that our sins in our land seem to be growing and not diminishing. There is not a great movement of repentance in our country. And the sins in our land, as we dive deeper into them, seem to, I imagine, cry out to the Lord for judgment. And I, I, I would imagine if we continue to reject God, we will be certain that there will be a day of reckoning. I think that point is clear from these verses, that all nations, what we're learning, are accountable to God, including ours. We're not exempt. Right? This, Bible, this, this book teaches of the universal reign of God. He rules the world. He controls the nations. He demands obedience. Right? And I understand you can say anything you want about your God today as long as you don't say things like that. As long as you, you, you can say, well, I got this God, he does this for me, but you can't say he needs to be everyone's God. And yet, this is exactly what Obadiah is teaching. In fact, all the prophetic books in the Bible, except two, contain oracles against foreign nations. Teaching us what? That they too must answer to this God. 
And so God, God is ruling over all the nations, whether they acknowledge it or not. And I think in some ways Christians should therefore take heart and not fear as this world seems to be careening out of control, as we're being tossed about, uh, that, that God is indeed reigning. He rules today. And his rule is good. And it will be just And even as justice came on Edom in the year 553 B.C. when Babylon attacked them and then leading to, in the coming generations, wave after wave of Arab assaults and the nation would be dissolved. The nation of Edom would never be seen again. There would never be a place called Edom again. And and just as as was promised in Genesis 27, what did did Isaac say to Jacob? God will bless those who bless you and he will curse those who curse you. God is against all those who are against his people. Now, of course, God is for justice for all people, whether they're his or not. For all people are made in God's image. But to persecute God's children, to taunt them, to mock them, to, to, um, to, to harm them, a people with, with whom God loves in a special way, the Bible tells us God will not allow that forever. And therefore, we as a people, what we should do, Hamilton Baptist Church, we should do the opposite. We should actually do the opposite of the Edomites. We should help other Christians, not just Christians within our congregation, but help those Christians wherever we might find them. This is why a year ago we started a pastoral internship program. Not to bless our church, but to help equip a pastor to bless another church that we may never ever have a relationship with. It's why we give to our seminaries, why we contribute to the Southern Baptist Convention. It's why we planted a church in Ensuam, Ghana, and go there two or three times a year. It's why we give to Winchester Baptist Church and Trinity Church in Ashburn. It's why we educate uh, 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 children in South Dakota. It's why we're taking a trip to Guatemala next month. Why are we doing all this? This is not for us. Well, we want to help Christians where we find them, right? We, we don't we want to be a blessing. This is why we gave last year $21,000 to plant churches in North America in a special offering, why we gave in addition another $47,000 to support foreign missions to the most difficult regions in this world, and why on top of that we gave an additional $20,000 in support of the persecuted churches just in our special offerings, in addition to the $189,000 that we spent out of our budget to bless ministries outside of this church, which is on top of our surplus. As you know, if we have a surplus in our church, we don't save it. We don't put it in the bank for a rainy day. We don't even spend it upon ourselves, but we take every penny of that and we use that to bless ministries and mission efforts outside this church. That's why the elders on Thursday night were discussing what should we do with our $173,000 surplus from the year 2019. In other words, last year, this church gave about $450,000 that will not be used in any way to bless you. Won't be used here at all. Amen. 40% of the, of the tithes and offerings, 40% of the tithes and offerings that we took, actually over 40%, we are using to spread the fame of Christ. The average evangelical church in America gives just under 5% outside its doors. Praise God. And why? Why are we doing this? Let us not take, we talked about this in elders meeting, let us not take that reality as we want to celebrate it and puff us up. 
But instead, let us give thanks to God for his grace in our life that we can be used to be a blessing to Christians and Christian ministries wherever we can find them. And may we always continue to do so. Let me turn quickly to my second and last point, the restoration of the persecuted. As you see there in verse 15, uh, we read, for the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. Now you notice here's a transition that the judgment of Edom um, is not just about Edom. Now we're talking about all nations. And the judgment of Edom was a foreshadow of the final judgment, what the Bible calls throughout Scripture the day of the Lord, as Obadiah does there in verse 15. The day of the Lord is near upon all nations. The day of the Lord is the idea that God one day will bring judgment and deliverance. And there are many little days of the Lord, little tremors before the great worldwide quaking that will come when Christ returns as King and Savior. And as, as we've already been suggested, the judgment that Christ will bring is not simply for an ancient and forgotten people, but it's for everyone who resists his grace. Notice, they will reap what they sow. For we read on in verse 15, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return upon your own head. For you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually and shall drink and swallow, and it shall be as though they had never been. And so in other words, that Edomites drank in celebration over the destruction of Judah, and now the nations will drink when you're destroyed. And yet, what is it they're drinking? It does not seem to be the wine of celebration, but rather the cup of divine judgment. For the book of Revelation says that they will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Perhaps that's expressed in other ways in verse 18. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble, and they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. And he will come in vengeance. But not only vengeance, he will come to bring deliverance to those who receive his mercy. For his people are going to be restored, as you see in verse 17. But in Mount Zion shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possession, their inheritance. And so some are going to escape that day. They're going to return to Mount Zion, which is emblematic of the presence of God. And and he says Mount Zion will be holy. That is, there'll be no more sin. There'll be no more violence or greed or jealousy or bitterness or anger or taunting. And what hope this must have given to the exiles in the day that it was given, as God is promising in some way to bring them back if you will, bring them back from death to restore their life. And in fact, to bring it even better than before. For you note, verse 19 tells us, those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Sephalah shall possess the land of the Philistines, and they shall possess the land of Ephraim, and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of the host of people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Now that, those, that geography doesn't mean much to you and I, does it? But imagine if you're a Jew in captivity and you have no land and you have no place. Imagine being removed from your ancestral land and God is promising a return, but more than a return because the description here far exceeds the boundaries that Israel ever knew. Right? It reminds us of what Christ would come and teach, what this all pointed to. What did he say? The meek shall inherit the earth. 
Right? In one sense, this prophecy is fulfilled in a few decades when the Jews return back home. But there's a fulfillment for which we await. The coming new heaven and the new earth. As promised when Christ comes to reign. As we read that last verse in this little prophecy. Verse 21. Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. The kingdom of God. God's people living in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. The book of Revelation ends likewise, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so it's interesting, isn't it, that this book begins with a prideful man standing upon his mountain, and now ends, here in verse 21, with Jesus and his people in holiness, standing upon their mountain. In fact, in many ways, this little book is that the message of it is that God is king. And he shows his kingly reign in how he treats both Jacob and Esau, how he treats both the proud and the forgiven. Now, what's fascinating is there's no record of this book ever, ever, this prophecy ever given to the Edomites. We don't have any, any uh, history that, that Obadiah went to Edom like Jonah went to Assyria. More than likely, he was a captive in Babylon, just like the rest of the Jews, and he gave his message to them. And so we might ask, why give a message condemning Edom to the Israelites? Well, it seems to me he's doing so because he wants to remind them who are in great uh, difficulty and trouble that God will keep his covenant That he will vindicate his people. Which in many ways is the message of Isaiah 63. So if you you turn there as we end our time together. Isaiah 63 is this wonderful and powerful passage. That Isaiah uses really Edom as a representative of the worst of humanity. Of people who despise God and persecute his people. And in Isaiah 63, we have this incredible kind of a, this poetry when he says in verse 1, Who is it who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? Who is, uh, spl- uh, who is in splendid apparel marching in the greatness of his strength? It's like Isaiah is a watchman on the wall of Israel, and he looks out hoping, praying that someone, that, that, that God would rescue them from the, the misery and the madness of his day, and he sees someone, someone coming in the distance. And he's coming in this great strength, he says. And he's coming from Edom, he says. And, and then he asks in verse 2, why is your apparel red and your garments like he who treads in the winepress? Right? Who, who is he? Is he friend? Is he foe? Why, why are his clothing red? Well, the answer is given in verse 3. The one who is coming answers his question. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me. I trod them in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of redemption had come. A very powerful and, and really, if you will, terrifying description that God gives that he executed vengeance. And at the same time, what? He describes it in the language of redemption. 
He says, I've done it alone. There's no army to help. Certainly we gave him no aid. We don't help God in his, in his justice. We don't help God in his vengeance. He, the Bible tells us that, that vengeance is left to the Lord. Instead, we as Christians are to do the, our, our, if our enemy is hungry, we are to what? Feed him. If our enemy is thirsty, we are to give him something to drink. And we leave, let God deal with these uh, 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 cosmic issues of justice. And now this one is marching towards us. Uh, Isaiah says, in the greatness of his strength, and he's awesome, and he's fearful, and we wonder, who is it? Well, the book of Revelation answers the question, Isaiah 63, who is it? In Revelation 19, he is described as a lion of Judah, Jesus Christ himself. And whenever I think of the, that, that imagery, the Lion of Judah, I think of C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. Remember when they promised the, the lion is coming, and, and one of the girls says, is he safe? Remember the response? Safe. Who said anything about safe? No, he is not safe. But he is good. That's the one who is coming. One day, not safe, but good. And he will rid the world of all evil, which raises a problem for us. If he's going to rid the world of all evil, what hope do we have? Because, friends, you have evil in your heart just as I do. The answer, as we end, is in verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior. Note verse 9, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity. He redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Out of his love, it's, we're told, out of, according to his compassion, because of his pity, he saves, he redeems, he became their savior. You say, how did he do it? Well, I think the hint there is in verse 9. In, his, in their affliction, he was afflicted. This warrior who comes to, 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 to deliver and to judge is one who first shares our suffering, our affliction. That is, before he comes as a lion, he first comes as a lamb. In fact, Jesus Christ would face, as you know, an Edomite in his day. Herod the Great, or King Herod, excuse me. At the end of his life, encountering King Herod, the, the Edomite, Jesus, the Israelite, ended up being bound and bloodied and mocked dressed up as a king. Obadiah says, do not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune. That's exactly what Herod the Edomite did. And yet, rather than crush the Edomite, Jesus was crushed. Rather than force him to drink of the wrath of God, Jesus drank it upon that holy mountain, bearing judgment for all who would trust in him. You see, the day of the Lord first came on Jesus, so that it needs not come on any of us. And there's the options. That's what stands before us according to Obadiah. We have two options. We can stand proudly and say, I don't need God. I don't need his grace and his mercy. 
and we could take our stand against Christ the warrior stained in blood. Or we could humbly bow. And we could admit that we have failed him and we have sinned against him. And yet he overflows in love. And we can ask him, as Jesus taught us, be merciful to me, a sinner. Father in heaven, we, we pray that even now, as I'm sure we have prayed many times before. Be merciful to me, a sinner. We are not the people we ought to be. We do not do what we should. We, the things we should do, we do not do. We fail you. We are. We do struggle with pride. And so we come to you, not on the basis of our own works, but we come to you on the basis of the work of Christ, and we ask for mercy. Be merciful to us. And Father, why you delay in sending the Lord, may we continue to be a people who proclaim the gospel, that we might tell others that there is mercy available from a holy God, that God would love you so much that he would allow his son to die a terrible death to pay your debt, your sin debt, and be raised three days later. And he offers mercy. He offers mercy right now to everyone in this room if they would simply put their faith in Christ. Not fix their life, not do a bunch of deeds, but simply bow their knee and say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I believe he died for my sin. I believe he rose from the dead. And now I ask, dear God, will you save me? May we be humbled even now. By your love, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.